John reached out to me several months ago now, wanting to discuss how we could partner together to serve those who have suffered from religious abuse, or more specifically, cult abuse. He had been facilitating support groups for years while researching, writing, and maintaining his full-time position in the tech industry. In his search for others doing corresponding work, he found help hard to find. Many of us have experienced this in our own personal search for support. Through this relationship, we've had the opportunity to get to know one another, to partner, and to collaborate on new passion projects intended to serve all of you. We most recently released our first season of the Free and Clear podcast, which you can find the link for in the show notes. With season two coming after the new year, we're looking forward to what we hope is a long relationship with many more opportunities to collaborate in the future. John is the author and webmaster of William Brenham Historical Research. He was born and raised in the message cult following of William Brenham and is the grandson of Willard Collins, former pastor of William Brenham's Brenham Tabernacle in Jeffersonville, Indiana. After his escape in 2012, John began the process of deprogramming from the indoctrinated religious and worldviews Brenham expressed. This process included reevaluating every aspect of life, including personal experiences and beliefs that were core to his belief system, worldview, and personality. Once establishing his baseline for religious views, John began to research the historical events in William Brenham's life. Brenham's life story was deeply integrated into the religious views of the message as core theology due to William Brenham's usage of his personal accounts as the foundation for many doctrines expressed in his recorded sermons. While focused primarily upon Brenham, it was necessary to also research the men associated with or influential to him, as well as notable events in the historical timeline of the United States and world history. When this research was organized chronologically, John began to notice patterns of data that appeared to suggest strategic usage of Pentecostal and fundamentalist extremism to advance the political views of men affiliated with or participating in the creation of William Brenham's ministry. William Brenham Historical Research is an ongoing project to document and organize that research data for public usage. John is a happily married father of three boys. He enjoys spending time with his family, playing his collection of stringed instruments, and visiting new places. His hobbies include music, art, video games, science fiction books or movies, and documentaries. When not writing, he relaxes by studying ancient world archaeology, geography, religion, and culture. As Naomi said, I'm the founder of William Branham Historical Research and author of Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message. My family was in the religious cult following of William Branham from Jeffersonville, Indiana, and we made our escape from that religion January 1st, 2012. And since then, I have done extensive research into not only William Branham, but the general movement that enabled him and others like him to create religious um, destructive cults. Absolutely. And John, I want to give a little more background to start on how your connection with the group was made. Do you mind giving us a little bit of background on that? My grandfather was the pastor for over almost 50 years at William Branham's Branham Tabernacle in Jeffersonville, Indiana. He was a deacon in William Branham's church. And after William Branham died, he was asked to take the place of basically the head pastor of the the tabernacle, which was essentially the cult's headquarter church. So he was... um, deeply involved with keeping the group alive and together after William Branham died, and in many ways responsible for some of the direction that it took after William Branham died. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, I don't know if I've asked you this before or not, but did your grandfather directly know William Branham? He did. My aunts and uncles were very close friends with William Branham's children, And they spent a great deal of time inside William Branham's home and vice versa. My grandfather and William Branham were very close. 
They lived in the same city in Jeffersonville. And when Branham moved to Tucson, Arizona, my grandfather also moved to Tucson and were just as close there. So not only did they know them, they were extremely close. And the, um, the public side that everyone else knew was somewhat different than the family side that we talked about that my family knew. Yeah, I bet. And I know that can happen in general with anyone. If they're a public figure, you know, there can be a slight difference in how they present versus at home. But in this scenario, I bet it was more drastic than one might expect. Right. For anyone who's listening, who's not super familiar with William Brenham specifically, um, what are some other names that this group goes by that maybe they have heard of? This group generally calls themselves the followers of the message. They believe that William Branham was the seventh age messenger to the last day. They teach dispensationalism and basically that the, the biblical churches of Asia Minor that are in the Bible, they believe were not churches, they were ages, dispensationalism, and that the seventh age or the last age was what William Branham was leading in the 20th century, and he was basically the messenger that would um, pronounce judgment on the world, and then Jesus Christ would come. He died, and then um, after his death, it, it continued in various different forms. Some of the churches splintered into subsects, and each of the subsect, um, depending on their theology either created and appointed new messengers since William Branham didn't succeed in in what he set out to accomplish, or they have basically memorial services dedicated to William Branham and, and that possibly he will return to earth and finish what he left unfinished. Yeah. And interesting, my dad was a singer and he sang in some of William Brenham's tent revival meetings. And he only told of this one interaction he had with them directly. So I'm not of the impression that they had conversations or anything that they really knew each other. Um, but that he just happened to be brought in and he would sing and then, you know, he would attend the service, but they had an interaction. I think it was within the calendar year prior to William Brenham dying in his car accident in 65 where my dad believed that he had sort of picked up the torch, so to speak, from mm-hmm. William Brenham in a way that, you know, many subsects have done. And what my dad did specifically, though, and I don't think my group is alone in this, he then believed that William Brenham had been Christ in his second coming. So Jesus had come a second time in the body of William Brenham. And the world had, you know, not fully recognized him for who he was, similarly to Jesus's first coming, as noted in the Gospels in the New Testament. And so then my dad was the prophet who was then on earth carrying the word of God until Jesus was going to return for a third and final time, which is really interesting because there's no even allusion to that at all in scripture, of course. Um but it's just been interesting to me as I've like listened to more of what you've done and read more and um, paid more attention to what is going on with different sects and things like that within the message that not everyone has done that to him. Not everyone has turned him into Jesus. And so we do see these this variety. And I think what's important for our listeners who are interested in this group specifically you can't really just lot, you know, outline here are all the main tenants exactly, and this is what it's going to look like. It sounds like there's quite a bit of variety. Would you agree with that? There is, and by design, William Branham was not unique in being a cult leader. And if you examine other religious cults, they all have the same type of charismatic, semi-narcissistic personalities that try to try to tell you what you want to hear. And because William Branham was so widespread in his efforts to lead the post-World War II healing revival, he was speaking to many, many different groups. He actually had multiple stage personas that he used with each different group 
everything from being doctrinally a Trinitarian who accepted the persons of the Trinity to one who opposed the Trinitarian belief and said that anybody who accepted it is going to hell. There's that big of a difference in his ministry. Well, he also told many people what they wanted to hear in order to keep them excited for what was coming. And in doing so, he was very vague in the way that he presented it. And he made multiple people in multiple countries believe that they had some special gift or some special um, ministry that was somewhat written in the Bible, in, in between the Bible pages, right? And at the, at the core of all of this is what is called the manifested sons of God theology. And this was the notion that in the last days, God would manifest himself, Jesus would manifest himself into the form of people. And each person, if they tried hard enough and became holy enough, they got a greater level of manifestation. And they would be able to speak things into existence. They would be able to heal by speaking or laying on of hands. There's a whole, you know, a whole branch of theology that was based on this doctrine. Well, those who he based, those who he convinced had a greater, greater level of the manifestation, those are the ones who generally became um, leaders of their own sect. Jim Jones of People's Temple is one who became a leader of his own sect and believed the manifested sons of God theology. What's interesting is there is no core doctrine that aligned all of these people, and some of them were so vastly different that each sect is really based on what each individual sect leader, each subsect is based on what individual sect leader wanted, desired, or created for himself or herself. Um, there's, there's people in Jeffersonville that remember after William Branham died, there was this vast movement in Jeffersonville where numerous people believe that William Branham's statements promoting polygamy was biblical, and they went and created several polygamous sects of the message. Yes, and interestingly, maybe maybe to you or maybe to someone who's listening. Um, my dad was married at the time, had six children and picked up on that, the polygamous aspect, and then believed that that was sanctioned, maybe not even just sanctioned, but he seemed to really believe that there was a call for the true Israel quote unquote to be reproducing at a greater rate to build the numbers, which is similar to what we would see of like Abraham in the old Testament. It's not, not exactly the same, but that kind of idea of growing the the nation, so to speak. Um, and his wife at the time who still today is in the message, she is still in a sect of the message um, felt that she had to divorce him. And so she divorced him because he was stepping into that aspect of what William Brenham had spoke on. And she did not believe that that was correct. Um, she believed that that was essentially having an affair. Um, and so they were then divorced and he from there ended up having several wives. Um, and she never felt that she was able to then remarry though. Um, so she stayed single. And like I said, she's still living today, but um, I have a direct, in, the direct implication of what that did really in my family, it's split. Um, right. I guess maybe I wouldn't be here had that not happened. So <laughs> pros and cons, yeah. I suppose. But yeah, it's really interesting, the impact. And your sect was not unique. Interestingly, my website began, I, when my website started, I still believe that William Branham was a prophet. It's kind of a funny story how it began. But by the time it became more of an exposure than a research and justification website, it was clearly against the theology of the message and exposing some of its very critical hidden secrets. There were groups of polygamous message-believing ministers and elders in other countries who disagreed with the primary sect and their handling of the transcripts and recordings of William Branham. According to them, that 
Voice of God recordings and some of the other leaders here in Jeffersonville were cutting out all of the polygamous, the pro-polygamous statements that William Branham made. And they actually contacted my website so that I would publish their research against the primary sect. So there was this kind of, there's this unique kind of war that I'm in the middle and I'm, I'm basically the, um, the person who's relaying messages between the two. So your sect was not at all unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting. I want to go back to a comment you made about, you know, there isn't really a a core doctrine that everyone would would agree to. Um, Culturally though, there can be things that make message believers identifiable. Um, And that's something I wanted to talk about is what, for those who are listening, who are curious about, well, what is, you know, oftentimes in, in cult groups, you, where do you stand on holidays? Do they practice them or not? And maybe there's some variety there. What's the the code of dress or um, how are women viewed? Or would you mind touching on some of those things? When people try to understand a cult, a religious cult, one of the first things that they try to do is to understand the rules because cults are notorious for having rules that are strange and unique. And that's usually where people start, but it, the rule, the rules are actually a result of the cult theology, not the foundation of the cult theology. And what is difficult about this particular cult, because there were so many different varying stage personas with so many different doctrines, you also can't judge the cult by its theology. The theology significantly changes over time. You have to judge the cult by its history. And that's the reason why my website transitioned into historical research so that I could try to present this very complicated mess of of a religious cult history. But at its core, William Branham's stage persona was that of a faith healing minister back during the days in the United States when the faith healing evangelism was a big thing. There were literally hundreds, if not thousands of ministers who claimed to have this gift of healing and people would come visit these these preachers in tents or in their churches. And this was a day when not everybody went to the movies or even had a theater to go to, but there would be traveling evangelists who would set up a tent and it was basically the entertainment for the community. There would be people who weren't even really that religious, but the whole community is joining in and they're going to have food and dinner on the ground and come listen to the preacher and, and be entertained. So his ministry started with that And around 1947, he started introducing uh, ideas that seemed supernaturally impossible and were were more unique and more intriguing. So he introduced the notion that he had been visited by an angel and about, I think the earliest I found is the end of 1946 is whenever that transition happened. So at its core, in its history, this was a movement that was based on a very common, you know, common evangelistic strategy. But then William Branham added the notion that he was the seventh age messenger to the last age, that he was the return of the biblical Elijah. And depending on which version of the stage persona, Elijah was just a messenger in this religion that was going to announce the return of Jesus Christ, later versions of the stage persona, this Elijah was Jesus Christ. The Elijah of the last day was the Lord Jesus Christ through the manifested sons of God theology. William Branham promoted himself as the voice of God or the spoken word, which is the reason why these names were chosen as publication and recording companies. And this was to supersede the written word, like all religious cults. The central figure had super, basically elevated superiority on scripture and doctrine. And 
as a result, faith in Jesus Christ alone is not sufficient for salvation. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ and faith in either the prophet or his message or his doctrines or his rules, depending on the subsect. So again, this it's a very complicated, changing, evolving religion. And to study it by the rules doesn't really do it justice. You have to study by the history and understand why the history exists and how that history impacted mainstream Christianity through these, these healing revivals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even, I mean, I've seen it again, even in my own small subsect where my dad passed away and I mean, the group didn't end. They just Mm -hmm. switch things around. They come up with new special revelation, quote unquote, and new leadership. And they just, they keep it going. There's this refusal to just let it die and say, well, we must've been mistaken. They have to revive it somehow. And John, for people who, again, like you said, it's a lot of information. I really encourage people who are interested, um, who either know someone or um, maybe they're even still in it and they're listening to this. I mean, if you're open to checking out some more information, please go to John's website. I'll link it in the show notes. But if we were to really lock down for someone practically, what was it about this religious experience that made it unhealthy? To understand the difference between a healthy church or healthy healthy religion and a destructive religion, you have to understand the types of manipulation that are used. As with most cults, and the reason why people look at the rules to understand the cult, there's a lot of behavior control. And this was a Pentecostal-style religion that was based on the rules and regulations of Pentecostalism. So you'll find the dress code for the women differs from mainstream Christianity, etc. But it runs much deeper than that. <clears throat> one of the one of the fundamental core, one of the the most commonly identifiable reasons why you would consider a cult to be destructive is the control of information. They Anything that is critical to the cult's theology or the cult's leader, the central figure, the cult will withhold it from the members. And it isn't, there's no transparency, there's no accountability. So, within this religion, most of the things that I've said to this point, the vast majority of people have, no, have never heard. They're not aware that this history even exists. There is a lot of thought control. There, are doctrines that are intended to cleanse the mind from evil thoughts anything that could be that could be trans transformed into a critical thought about william branham or the message those thoughts need to be purged from your head and you need to um not think on heavenly things is what they call it don't think on things that could lead you astray So there's a lot of behavior control, thought control. There is manipulation of emotions that basically is the the background for all of this. The the sermons themselves are designed to preach at people or scold people, reprimand members. They're They're not really uplifting, which was the big thing that we noticed when we left the religion and started going to other churches. Personally, the, um, the the manipulation that people endure in the cult has a very negative effect on the mental health of, of its members. I work with several people who have escaped this religion in multiple countries, and the mental health issue is a real problem. There are a lot of people that after they leave, they have to enter into some sort of counseling or therapy. Some people need to go on medication to overcome the, um, the level of pain that they have when they leave these types of groups. Yeah, absolutely. And it's completely understandable when you realize the depth of the manipulation and the persistence of it just day in, day out, over and over again. And I here at NWM, of course, we certainly encourage support professionals 
it can be incredibly beneficial for people. We ourselves offer a mentoring program to connect one-on-one, but oftentimes people too, who are coming out of something like this, it just, it's not safe to reach out to someone one-on-one. It's just, it's too much. Who do you trust? How do you know who to trust? Do you even trust yourself to have good judgment? I mean, it's just, there's a lot of trust stuff going on. And so books out there, resources out there, of what you offer um, and WM offers and others as well. Um, Dr. Stephen Hassan, I know we just kind of briefly went through his bite model on that is incredibly helpful for people. And it can be a safer way to access information to begin with before maybe then someone feels like, okay, I trust this resource. I'm comfortable reaching out. So John, I want to transition into a little bit more of a a personal experience for you and ask some questions in that area. While you were connected to this belief system directly, so while you were believing it, you were a member of this cult group. What was your personal what was your personal view of God? How did you I, see God? I was I was deeply under cognitive dissonance. Um, I was a I was not a person who just showed up on Sunday. I believed it. I listened to it continually. Um, when I would go to school, I had a Walkman back in those days and I would have my headset on and in between classes, I'd be walking and listening to William Branham screaming in my ear. And, um, I had, uh, I had a series of sermons from about 1963 to 1965, I think it was. And they were towards the end, whenever his, his mental health was in decline. So, I, his view of God was drastically different from the early versions of the stage persona. Those were influencing my views of God. But at the same time, I also read my Bible a lot. And I knew the passages where there's a clear, distinct father speaking to a son and who's going to send the Holy Spirit. I believed that because it's in the Bible. And yet I believed the oneness Pentecostal views that William Branham was saying, I wasn't really aware that he, at that time, that he was also speaking and accepted the Trinity. So I had this weird view where I believe the Trinity, yet I also believe the oneness version of, of God. And I, um, because of, you know, this is, this is a name it, claim it religion. It's a faith healing, a, um, it's basically the foundation for all of these televangelists that so many Christians look down on um, for their skeptical, you know, their um, pseudo Christian practices. But I basically, I believe the rabbit's foot God. I believe that the God was somebody that you went to, to get something. And the harder you tried to faith yourself into it, the more he would give you. And I'd like, like every good message believing person who understood this manifested sons of God, I wanted to speak things into existence and I tried and failed miserably. (laughs) And what did that mean when you failed? What you didn't try hard enough or there was sin in your life or there was, there was some reason it was, there was some barrier in the way. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's funny in a way, but it's sad in a way too. So I have, I have family who has severe health issues. My uh, mother and my grandmother on my mother's side has chronic diseases that are neurological diseases that they they'll have the rest of their lives. There's no way that they, there's no medicine for it. There's no treatment for it. And they believe truly that they have sinned in some way. And that's why God is punishing them with this disease that they have. So they reap the negative consequences of this doctrine. I, as a child, was trying to be like Superman. You know, I wanted the superpower that I, I was told I could have and just never got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking that as I said that kind of with a smile on my face, I was thinking simultaneously, this also ruins people's lives. And right. very personally, I remember kneeling in front of my dad the day before he died, he was in a, a reclining chair. And I remember kneeling in front of him and essentially pleading with him to humble himself before God, because otherwise I was afraid he might actually die. Even though I was taught that he could not die, he would not die. Um, 
And I really believed that if he would correct, because I knew he was an abusive man, I knew that there were things that were not in alignment with who I saw God to really be. Um, That if he would repent for those things and humble himself, he would be healed and he would live. I really believed that. Um, I really believed the week that I watched my mom die in her own home. I believed that it was going to work out. Okay. That whatever was going on was whatever is going on with her and between her and the Lord that would be reconciled and she would live. And she didn't. I mean, so this belief took both of my parents within three years of one another and neither received any form of medical care. And my mom was only six. That's hard. Yeah. That's hard. So it, does. I have... it ruins lives. I have several people in the support networks who tell similar stories that they're uh, one of one of my closest friends. He um, he's had a very rough life because he watched his mother die when all she needed was medication. And I think she died in the church in the Tucson Tabernacle. And he's um, he's, you know, has a lot of issues that go from that. And he's not alone. You're not alone. There are so many people in this type of religion that um, experience similar things. One of the men who helped sponsor William Branham's ministry, his revival meetings in Canada, his name is Alfred Pohl. And he was like everybody going to see the entertainment of the faith healer. And he was involved on the platform with the ministry. He watched numerous people healed from life and death um, diseases. And after the healer left, after William Branham went back home, these people still had the diseases that they were allegedly healed from. Many of them died. And he said it really challenged his faith. He almost left religion altogether because of it. I have no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. The fallout of that is horrible. Transitioning a little bit. How did you, these, this is this group and any cult group, there's an exclusivity there. There's a, a kind of a secrecy and an I'm, I'm better than, I'm privy to information that others aren't. I'm the chosen and you are not, things like that. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, how would you describe how you felt towards people who were not a part of the message along with you? There was, there was a clear hierarchy, like with any cults. My family was at the top because of my grandfather and so even the difference between what I would be and some of my friends is, is slightly different because it, it's like a pyramid. The central figures at the top, you have the enforcers who would be my grandfather, and then you have the rank and file members. Well, because of the nature of a destructive religion, you either form a physical compound or you form a mental compound. In our case, it was a mental compound. And anybody who's outside of the boundaries of that mental compound who weren't in the fold, so to speak, were doomed to hell, but not just doomed to hell. We were trained to believe that they were, quote unquote, cannon fodder, that these were people who deserved to be burned to hell. And our job was to condemn them so that we could be more righteous. I don't know. But my view towards uh, I'm. Per, from a personality standpoint, I have a very, very high level of empathy in all of the personality tests that I take. I, I think I've always had that all my life. So I was one who, even though this weird thing existed with the cannon fodder, I was the one who wanted to save those instead of condemn them to hell. Why condemn them to hell when you can bring them in? So I actively tried to convert everyone that I came in contact with, even after being scorned when, you know, in hindsight, these people knew I was in a cult and they would have nothing, nothing to do with it. But that didn't stop me from trying daily to bring people into it to save their lives. Wow. And that, first of all, there's a part of me that sort of sarcastically thought while you were speaking, what a novel idea. Because this is exactly what, if you're looking at what true Christianity is, we we are supposed to be, you know, there's, mm. and not this just, oh, I'm supposed to, so I'm going to go get it. Like, no, we're supposed to, we're supposed to love and care for one another and desire good things for one another. Mm. Um, and 
I think it's incredible and noteworthy that that's something you were living out, even when you were in a group where no one else really was, or at least very few probably. And what's interesting to me on, I'm going to go on sort of like a technical side for a second, but I think you'll appreciate that I'm doing this because you like this stuff too. On a technicality, you're kind of, these groups that approach it this way are kind of shooting themselves in the foot because they're not they're not really actively trying to recruit. They have, they've turned everyone else into the enemy Mm -hmm. and they're damned. And so we've got to just reproduce from the inside in order to keep us going and add to our numbers. We're not really going to bring people in maybe through marriage, someone gets brought in or things like that. But my group was the same. My subsect, it didn't actively recruit. It would welcome if someone came to check it out through relationship, but yeah, there wasn't any real recruiting going on in contrast to other cult groups that we see who are very actively recruiting. They want to grow their numbers. They want to bring in more money. They want to bring in more influence and power. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting to me how this group specifically approached recruitment. You know, it's, it really, I don't know if you've probably read these, but there's several sites online where you can read the differences between a healthy church and an unhealthy church. And in in our case, it's a healthy religion versus an unhealthy religion because it is different from Christianity. But one of the attributes of a healthy church is that it promotes growth and it, it grows because people are so excited to make it grow that it just grows and spreads versus an unhealthy church, which kind of implodes because there is no growth. There is no Um, there's no outreach. What's interesting is that very thought is one of the things that as I was making my escape, I started thinking this, why are we preaching to the saved? Why, Why are we not preaching to the lost? And I'm a songwriter and I actually had, had a series of songs that came to my head so fast that I, I actually didn't even write them all down. I recorded one, but the thought of why save, why are we trying to save the saved? We have these ministers um, back to the rules. You go every single Sunday and listen to a minister condemn women with short hair. There's not a single person in his congregation who is female who has short hair. So what is the point of this, right? What's interesting is after we left the cult and we started experiencing new churches, my background of being in a cult, I found was so vastly different from Christianity that I, over time, I basically had to review, I had to view myself as I'm not a Christian, I'm a new convert. I want to learn more about this religion that you speak. And so I would go into a church with that mindset and you could quickly tell the healthy ones from the unhealthy ones, because just like in the cult, you have these ministers who are entertaining by speaking so harshly against people who don't believe in the same way they do that for me, I'm entering in this church. I don't believe the same way that they do. And he's literally just railing me for it. And I I have to be honest, I wasn't very, I wasn't very excited to join that mindset again. So it's a bigger problem than just the message, but in the message cult following of William Branham, take that that I experienced in the in the Christian churches. Now take that to a much much more finite level. They believe that everyone, even if they're Christian, who didn't see exactly eye to eye as their particular subsect, that included other subsects of the message cult. They would preach against those other subsects. So. It, it's such a finite level of, of those people who can be saved and those people who you are supposed to condemn that it is extremely unhealthy. I really appreciate that you brought in your church experience as well, your mainstream Christian church experience. Um, similarly, I have had some really rough experiences that have set me back in my own healing process at times. And just as a reminder for those who are listening, this is not just about, this is not solely about cult groups, people who fit that classification. This is about religious abuse and 
religious harm that is occurring in mainstream churches within Christianity and outside of Christianity within other world religions, when people are being abused and harmed by leadership in one way or another, and it's being done under this cloak, this like veil of, sorry to use a word that might be a trigger word for some people who are listening, but under this, yeah, this kind of cloud of this is why I get to do it. You know, this is okay. This isn't sanctioned in some way by the religious book that I follow. Um, We have a problem. And again, it doesn't always fit all the cult criteria, that definition, um, but ultimately that doesn't matter if people are being harmed, people are being harmed. And we take that seriously and we need to do something about it. And your experience, unfortunately, is also common, as I'm sure you know, Mm -hmm. that people come out of a cult group and they try to find something mainstream and then they find that that is also letting them down and that's harming them in some way. And while I know that is not the totality of the experience, I know that there are are healthy churches out there, healthy organizations out there. Um, It's incredibly discouraging, especially when that comes like right on the heels of coming out of an official cult group or a different abusive experience. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's frustrating. It's completely unacceptable. And it's why lists like what you were referring to exist of how, what is a healthy church and how, how do we find that? How do we identify it? Um, John, you kind of alluded a little bit to your exit process there with how you, the church you went to after and some of what that was like. Would you share a little bit more though about that overall exit and how this disconnect from the group influenced your life? I'm a bit unique from the other people I work with and our support networks. For a lot of people, it is a slow, painful process of waking up. And there has to be a lot of of, um, deep soul searching that leads up to the awakening, if you call it that. For me, I just suddenly snapped out of it for no good reason that I can think of other than a series of very painful life events that I went through. My, my background in the cult, I was a firm believer. I was, um, you know, up, up until probably a few months before leaving, I would have taken a bullet for this religion. I, I would have gladly, willingly died for it. And I went through a series of very painful, life-changing events that, to be open and honest, I, I was very near suicidal. I wasn't actually acting, but I had a cousin who also had escaped the cult who called me every single day to basically talk me out of it. And um, I don't know if it was a result of him that caused me to start thinking or not, but he... Um, his view of God was much different than I had in the cult. He, he said that, um, you know, I asked him about it because I knew he wasn't a believer in William Branham. And he says, John, I believe in the cowboy God. And I said, what's that? And he said, love God, love your neighbors that aren't trying to kill you and be kind to animals. <laughs> and the further I get away from this cult, the, the more I realize that his view of God was much better than, than I had at the time. And um, anyway, I was I was really suffering from all of the things that had happened from nearly losing a nephew to losing a C-level position in my firm that I work for. Just I, I was I was near the end and he talked me through it. And then suddenly I woke up and I can remember plainly. I had read a, bi- a chapter in the Bible. I'd read the, this page, and I'd, or I'd ended on this page. And at that time, I was trying to read the book consecutively, you know, page by page until I got tired. And went back and reread the first page so I could pick up the context. And it said the exact opposite of what I'd read the night before. And I wondered, how in the world is that even possible? You know, I, I read it. I've read this. It's something I've read many times. But... I was reading it through the lens of what William Branham had indoctrinated me with, and I had suddenly snapped out of it. And my family went to a, um, had a singing revival down in Georgia at one of the churches. And I had children that were slightly unruly in these long, long services. 
And this particular church had a basement with a room for the men to take their children. Most churches, it has a little room where all the women get together in one room. So I went downstairs with my son and, oh my gosh, they had leather recliners and Legos galore and had a 50 inch HD TV. And so I kicked back in the recliner and the boy was down playing Legos and I'm watching this, but I'm not in the service feeling all the emotion and the excitement. I'm just watching it on TV. And it suddenly hit me. This just feels like these televangelists that I heard about on TV and I've seen a couple of them and it feels fake. What is this? And that's really what led to me starting to deeply soul search into what is this thing I was in. And I had, I struggled with a very poor memory and I run an IT company, which that's sometimes a conflict, but I wanted to ask my grandfather some of the questions that had been coming in my head. I still believe William Branham was a prophet. And so I threw a few of them up on a few of my questions up on a web page. And, um, you know, I was going to approach my grandfather and I could look it up on my phone, the, the questions. And before I could even see him, the cult had somehow identified my web page spread through the entire globe that John Collins is going rogue. And before I could approach my grandfather, he called me and read me my last rites. And he said, John, people have known these things for years. What does it hurt you to believe them anyway? And then he proceeded to threaten myself, my family. And he quote unquote, took us out from under the blood, which is basically the equivalent of shunning. And my wife, who he didn't even talk to, for for all he knew, she was still a believer, was also shunned because she was married to me. And the following Sunday, he announced that we were basically taken out from under the blood, so to speak. And from that day forward, parents, family, uncles, friends, nobody was, was really permitted to speak to us. Those who did don't speak at the same level were emotionally shunned. So January, I think we escaped on the 12th. So it was probably the 15th or 17th. We lost everybody that we knew. Mm-hmm. And again, just to really bring this home for people, this is a result of them finding out that you had questions mm-hmm. and that was it. This was about controlling information. It wasn't just that I had questions. It was that if I'm asking questions, somebody else might learn that these questions exist. And can you explain for people, um, I think we understand your grandfather is the minister. He's the one who's pastoring this congregation. Again, it's William Brenham's tabernacle. It's like, it's the original church that William Brenham had pastored in. You are the grandson. So we understand there's that family lineage and that tie. What what um, what had your involvement looked like at the church? What was sort of the significance of it being you specifically who had these questions? I just want to speak to that directly. I, you know, we moved so much. I, I was born in Indiana, but I've moved and lived everywhere from Arizona to South Carolina. <clears throat> I went to 13 different schools growing up and different Wow. Cult churches and different subsects all throughout the nation. Um, I, my family, I, you can see I'm a musician and I love stringed instruments. My grandfather was claimed that William Branham was against stringed instruments. And some of the churches in the South, that's all they had were stringed instruments. Everybody played. Um, I was recognized because I was a Collins in each of these churches. Um, I, I can remember once I got married and I was old enough to be recognized as, as a Collins. Um, I can remember visiting a church just to visit and being asked to pray the closing prayer, which was kind of a big thing in this religion. And I would, one church asked me to speak just because I was a Collins and I showed up and I turned it down because I'm even though in this in this thing that I'm doing with my website, I'm very outspoken, but I'm actually not a, a person who enjoys being in 
in the public eye. It goes totally against my personality. So I never really engaged it. I could have. I could have probably been a minister or some something big in this thing, but I didn't want it. I didn't want that level of of public uh, presence. I, it, it just went against my grain. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something you can look back on and see, wow, that probably served you in ways. Um, and I think I think just what hit me as significant is who you were just through biology, (laughs) biologically, who you were connected to and the significance that you got for that. And what that means then when you suddenly have questions. And so I just want to highlight that for people. That's a really big deal. And I knew that when I came out publicly, that it would be a big deal. And has been a big deal. You know, anyone where I had connections, I don't, I don't have them anymore. And so those were shut off. And there's something about, to use a biblical reference, kind of being the Judas of the family in a way. Mm-hmm. I think there's a similarity to that. And these groups will go to any degree that they possibly can to make sure that they preserve themselves and they pre- preserve their message. And so, yeah, they will, they will not hesitate to get rid of people that supposedly you know, they've, they've loved forever. And I have my own opinions about if there is still loving care there in some way, um, but a feeling that they cannot engage, they're not supposed to, they have to cast out those who are now public enemy number one. Um, But ultimately where it lands us is, yeah, a lot of loss. So John, would I be correct in, in saying then that you haven't had any contact with members of your congregation since? minimal. Most of them have cut me off. I remember one of my best friends, whenever I I went to a a local Mexican restaurant after we had left the cult, and I was excited because I was sitting facing the entryway and I watched his wife enter the the little entryway and there was a a glass wall so I could see her and I knew that he was about to, to come in. So I thought I'd see somebody I could say hello to. And she stopped when she saw me and waited for him to get in. She looked and pointed at me and my family. And then he and her and their children left the building and just left so that they didn't have to enter a building with me. Myself, even my wife, to some extent, we can go into a grocery store or into Walmart and you can watch them just scatter when you turn a corner. And it's, it's, after a while, it becomes a little bit painful because these are people that you really still really like and enjoy. I don't believe that it's a loss of love. I don't think that internally they have really processed cutting you off. There's a cult identity that suppresses their authentic self. I think deep inside, they still love you. They want to talk to you. They want to be around you. But this cult identity is just suppressing that authentic person and you know, it's, it's painful. My own mother, I called her probably 2000 and I guess it was 2014. It was the last phone call that I had with her. And I called to wish her a happy birthday. And you mentioned the Judas. She told me that I was the Judas and that was why she wanted to kill herself. And she hung up on me. So there's a lot of, a lot of pain that comes from, from being the Judas I think for people who escape, who are not outspoken, it's much easier than somebody like you or I, who's trying to help people. I do have people in the support networks who have reconnected with family. And even though it'll never be the same, there's still some love and, you know, they still have a relationship, even though it's not the same. And I think over time, some of them realize that what they had before also wasn't healthy. It was in many ways, we had an unhealthy level of closeness in the cult. And so whenever people try to reconnect, they try to get that same level of unhealthy closeness. And it's odd because the person who's still in the cult tries to deflect and the person who has escaped realizes that this feels unhealthy. And so they're disconnecting. So there's, there's a loss of, loss of connection that comes really from both sides. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. I agree with you that I don't think it's actual love lost. I don't think, I don't personally think that that's possible to just magically stop loving your children, but ultimately the the loss is there. And there are, there are things about my parents both having passed on before me coming out and going public that I'm thankful for. One, I don't know if it would have happened. It's hard to go back and connect those dots and see how that would have come to be if they were still alive. But it's, I speak to this in my, my eight minute recap video that I had come out with last year of there's a part of me that's thankful that they're gone. And I mean that with love, Um, but it's allowed more freedom for me. And some of those losses I already took in another way. So it's not like I got, I got out of anything. I mean, I had to, I had to watch two people die that I deeply loved and cared for that I didn't think could die. And there are some other details around that, that I just now isn't the time and place. So I'm happy to share it another time that really complicated the situations. So I didn't, I didn't get out of loss. I didn't get out of grief, but my journeys looked different, I think, because of that. And I think it's opened doors for me to come out of something that maybe I otherwise would not have. And my losses now are different than they would have been if they were still alive. So in a way, it's almost like I got some of it handled. I grieved some of that. I went through some of that before I actually even realized my own experience, let alone went public with it. And I know I can look back and see different ways that this experience has certainly shaped me as a mom and as a wife and as a friend. And of course, has impacted me in a career um, regard as well. And I'd like to ask that question of you. How has this history shaped you as a husband and a father? I think the biggest thing that it has done is because of what we went through and the manipulation that we were under. I have trained my kids to be critically thinking about everything, no matter what it is that they're involved with, no matter who it is they're involved with, critically examine what's going on. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're in. Um, it, there was really, there were a lot of unhealthy family doctrines in, in this religion. Women were really looked down upon And I didn't realize it until after I left, but some of the core doctrines were that women were designed by Satan to deceive and that the female gender was a byproduct. It wasn't in the original creation. So even the views between men and women were just really unhealthy. So it's, it's really changed in many ways that some of them I even have difficulty explaining my perception and my worldview is different because I'm no longer under that manipulation. Um, my children, I will, I, I will fight to the end to keep them out of any similar manipulation. So it, it has changed not only the way that I think, but the way that I view life itself. And John, I want to wrap piggybacking on what you just said these children of yours, if you were to give them a word of caution and hopes of them never finding themselves in a similar situation, what red flag would you most want them to be aware of? I think the biggest thing to be aware of is that this type of manipulation exists and it's not only found in religion, even in marketing. There's a book by Edward Bernays, Uh, who is the nephew of Sigmund Freud called Propaganda. And it talks about the way that people can be manipulated on a massive scale. And you find it in movies and television. You find it in these mega churches, um, some of which may be good, but a lot of them that I've tried are not. You find it in, even to, to the extent some of the smaller churches are making use of types of manipulation. And not all manipulation is bad. Some of them are trying to manipulate you into being a good person, but it's the manipulation itself that you have to really be careful. Is this, am I being manipulated against my will or am I being manipulated unknowingly? So I, my word to my kids is very firmly be critical of everything you're in. Even if you agree with it, be critical of what you're in because you just, 
you never know if you're sitting back and and taking things in without thinking thinking it through subconsciously you're still being affected so i teach them stay out of the subconscious and basically you know listen to listen to what's going on just be alert Thank you.